I wanna talk today about becoming disciples as part of this message. Becoming disciples. I don't know about you, because uh, different people have different experiences with Jesus. Some, some of us you know, kind of grew up in, in, um, in a Christian home. Our daughter grew up like that. She was like, there was always a time we were talking and praying together and being a family. So she, she didn't have this massive conversion experience um, because, she, you know, but some people have this massive Damascus Road experience, and I was kind of like that. Although I grew up in a church-going family, I just, I didn't, I met the Lord. And when I met Him, He radically transformed my life. And I remember that first love. I don't know if you remember your first love. Sometimes, you know, people when you talk about first love, they think about some, some person, you know, the first person they lost their heart to and lost sleep over and, you know. I'm talking about your first love with Jesus. When you, when you absolutely were besotted with him, when you first came to know him, when you had a voracious hunger for the scriptures, when you loved being in prayer meetings, when you couldn't wait to hear the Lord's voice, when, you, uh, when, when, when there was a free moment and your heart yearned for the courts of the Lord, you, you wanted to hang around people who loved Jesus. I, I, I wanted to hang around people who knew how to worship and played instruments. I, I, I just had this yearning on the inside of me. And that that vibrant passion, a lot of people in the Christian walk can relate to that, but they can also relate to the fact that later on in the Christian walk, that first love seems to dwindle, and now it becomes all about rules and things and obediences and I should do this. It becomes orthodox and not passionate. And so I want to read to you from the, the book of Revelations where Jesus addresses the church in Ephesus who have become like that. And this is what he says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now listen to his, his commendation of this church. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You found them out to be false. You have persevered. You have endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary. That's a nice checklist of things I'd like the Lord to say, well done to you guys. I have just this one thing that's really bugging me about your church, basically is what he says. You've forsaken your first love. You've forsaken the love that you had at first. And he says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent. Do the things that you did at first. And then he goes on in the scripture and he says, because if you don't, I'm going to come remove your lampstand from its place. I will take this church out of this community, Jesus says, if you don't come back to your first love. Because a church that has no first love but that is orthodox and in their orthopraxy is pure is not a kind of church that Jesus wants. That's a little shocking. Jesus doesn't want churches that are doctrinally pure and hard of heart. He doesn't need believers who have the 15 key strategic theologies right, but who don't love other people. He said, listen, guys, you guys are working hard. You, oh, he's a false apostle. He's not a true, because you guys have got that down. My problem is you don't have first love. They'd cooled off in spite of their doctrinal purity. They remained orthodox, but became unloving. 
Now, they had some issues in this church because there was a, one of the early deacons named Nicholas had, had gone off the rails and he'd really pushed grace to the nth degree and he said, it doesn't matter who you sleep with because he was married and he said, it doesn't matter who you sleep with. So he got into sexual immorality. He was a foolish man and, and Jesus said, I, I don't like the teaching of the Nicolaitans and you also hate that. That's a good thing. So this church had some problems and maybe it was because of Nicholas that was in and around the church that some of their hearts had grown cold, but they were doctrinally pure, but but, but cool in their love. And uh, they may have been orthodox, but they were hurtful and judgmental. One of the things we need to do, and one of the questions we need to ask is, how can I, how can you sustain a lifestyle of first love? Because I would, I would so much rather that people who came into contact with me said, man, he's been with Jesus. There's something sweet. There's something winsome. I, I like being with him. I, I feel encouraged after I've been with him. I want to know Jesus more after I've been with him. There's, there's something about him. I would hate people to go, well, he's judgmental. I don't want to be near him. Every time I go there, he points out some weakness or sin or brokenness in my life. I don't want to, it's not so much. I want to learn how to not just be in my first love, but to grow and keep being sustained in the first love. And I'd like our church to learn that too. We need to be people who understand this. Now Jesus left us a model. So I wanna talk about it, it's our model. It's our model. Jesus ushered in a spiritual kingdom that has lasted for more than 2,000 years on the earth because he invested his life in 12 men. The world is transformed not because we spoke to the masses, but because we transformed the lives of the people in front of us. Individuals find transformation uh, not because truth was shouted at them, but because somebody discipled them. Jesus separated this large group that began to follow him, and he chose from among them only 12. I mean, this is Luke 6 and Mark 3, and it says he he, 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 after a night of prayer, there was all these people who wanted to be around Jesus. It was a status symbol to be around the miracle worker. Everybody was like, pick me, pick me. Jesus prayed and said, you 12? And he comes, says he called them to himself to be with him, and he designated them apostles. And then Jesus began to invest his life in those 12s. He took them with him everywhere he went. He demonstrated miracles in front of them. Then he commissioned them to go and perform miracles. He taught them. Many, many times he taught the crowd, but only the 12 came and said, could you explain that to us? Because we have no clue what you just said. And he'd explain it to them. When he dismissed the crowds, he went with his disciples. There were many, many times the disciples had access and the unique privileges of connection and access um, brought upon them also the unique responsibilities of kingdom achievement. Jesus wanted them to achieve things in the kingdom. He wanted to prepare them for what he had. And out of those 12, Jesus further chose three, and those three had extra special access. They went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They went into the house of Jairus' daughter, who he raised from the dead. They were with him, in closest to him in Gethsemane, and heard his prayer to the Father. There were three that Jesus drew even closer. Jesus invested himself in a few, You go, well, why, why, were, why were those closer? Part of it was because they wanted to be. 
John chapter 13, there's this amazing story where Jesus is telling his disciples, one of you, they're in a, they're in a meal, there's 12 of them, to, 12 disciples and Jesus, 13 people in a room, and they're lying around the table as is the, the Jewish custom, where you lay on, on your side with one arm and you ate, you ate from the table, and, and there's 12 men lying around like this, and Jesus says, he's disturbed in spirit, and he says, one of you is going to betray me. This is John 13, 21. And they're all amazed, and they don't know what to say. And, then, and they're like, surely not me. And uh, the one who's lying closest to Jesus, Jesus is lying behind him, is John, the disciple of Jesus loved. And Simon Peter says to John, psst, psst. She says, ask him. Jesus said, one of you is going to betray. He says, ask him. So, so John leans back, puts his head on Jesus' chest. Because Jesus, which one? Jesus says, I'm going to dip this bread in the bowl and I'm going to give it to him. And he dips it and he gives it to Judas. And he says to Judas, what you're about to do, do quickly. And nobody else understood except John who was going, Judas. You know why John got to have that inside information? Because he asked. Because he dared to lean back. Some of what you know, and some of the work of God in your life is going to come because you desire it, because you dare to ask, because you pressed in, because you said, Lord, where I am is not enough for me. I want more. Don't tell me that your background or where you've been or where you started has anything to do with any of this. It does not. Jesus didn't care about any of that. It doesn't matter where you started. It matters how you want to go forward with God. If you're hungry with him, he's going to take you unbelievable places. But Jesus proportioned his life and he committed it to 12. The whole of Jesus' life was governed by the call that the Father had put on him. Jesus lived 30 years sinlessly for your sake. Jesus governed his entire life by the call the Father had on him. So you must understand that Jesus did nothing that was superfluous. Jesus came into his public ministry with a declaration of John the Baptist who was the rock star of the age. For 400 years, nobody had seen anything Thing, John the Baptist hits the stage and he calls for repentance and massive crowds come to be baptized of John. And one day Jesus comes down and John the Baptist turns and points at him and says, that's the Lamb of God who's to take away the sins of the world. He said, I'm not even worthy to be the most menial servant in his house. Or I can't even wash his feet because I baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And the crowd all turned to Jesus. This is Jesus' moment. That's how he started his ministry. But Jesus governed his entire ministry because he wasn't trying to go after a crowd. He was trying to minister to 12. And so Jesus turns his ministry and he focuses this on this 12 because everything about what's going to happen in the world depends on the faithfulness of these 12. And John 17, Jesus prays. He says, my prayer is not for them who are in the world, but my prayer is for those that you gave me, Father. He begins to pray. This is the urgency of Jesus' call. His entire life arranged around the Father's will and mission. If there was anybody in all of history that could have played to the gallery, it was Jesus. But Jesus frequently healed somebody and said, hey, don't tell anybody what just happened. I, go, oh, I used to be blind and now I'm going back into my city. How can I not tell people? Don't tell anyone. In fact, some, many times it says he sternly warned them. 
It became so popular. Jesus became so popular that in John 6, 15, it says the crowd decided, all right, enough of this. We're going to make him king. King by popular acclaim. Jesus had to lose himself in the crowd. John 3 says they clamored for him. John 12 says the Pharisee says the whole world has gone out after him. Jesus had no problem with popularity from the crowd. But the same crowd who said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and threw down their clothes so that his donkey could walk over them. The very next day said, by what authority do you do this? And the day after that, they screamed, crucify him. The crowd is a fickle master. Jesus did not have a passion to go and win the crowd. You know what Jesus did? He wanted to disciple 12. If Jesus had played to the crowd with the start John the Baptist gave him and then he was feeding them and healing them and delivering them and preaching to them and teaching to them and rebuking the Pharisees and telling Herod, calling Herod an old fox, he, he could have won popular vote by far. If Jesus wanted to play to the crowd, he could have had a temporary kingdom in Israel like that. But Jesus was not trying to win a crowd. He was trying to introduce a kingdom. Even the three, he said, when they went up the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, all right, now listen to me, guys. We're going down now. I, I don't want you to tell anybody about this till after I've been resurrected. Clear? Jesus modeled this for us. There is a model that we're following. The model is, while we minister to the crowd and love them, we invest ourselves in a few. When Jesus died... You know what he had to show for his entire ministry? It's a broken body and 12 disciples. It's our mission. Jesus then turns around, he, gets, he, gets, he dies, he, he gets resurrected. He told the disciples, go and wait for me in Galilee. Um, they go and wait for him there. He shows up there and the Bible says for 40 days he taught them about what? About the kingdom. Jesus taught them about the kingdom because the whole purpose of Jesus was not to win the crowd or romance the crowd. His whole purpose was to prepare some disciples who he could confer the kingdom on. Jesus was trying to release a kingdom, not to entertain a crowd. And then Jesus came to them. These are the, remember, these are the 12 who he has discipled. And he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now you go and make disciples. Because he, he modeled it and then he gave us the mission. This is your mission. Go and make disciples. You think surely Jesus could have had a more enticing program of mass recruitment? Instead, when the crowds got so big that he could hardly move anywhere, you know what he did? He said, okay, shh, shh, quieten down, guys. Shh. Unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you can have nothing to do with me. And the whole crowd left him. And then the 12 were standing there going. And he said, don't you guys also want to leave? And Peter said, Lord, where can we go? You have the words of life. He said, good. Well, then we're going here. He left. He came in with about 40,000, 50,000 people. He left with 12. Jesus was not trying to impress a crowd, but to usher in a kingdom. If you hear nothing else in this message, he loved the crowd. He loved ministering to the crowd. 
Many times he spent all day doing that. But Jesus was not trying to impress a crowd. He is trying to usher in a kingdom. And if you're going to usher in a kingdom, the crowd is not going to get it done. The disciples usher kingdoms in. They're come under the discipline. They are people who follow. They are people who obey. They are people who think like their teacher, who speak like their master, who walk where their rabbi walks. The saying in Israel at the time was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, which meant if you were one of the Talmudin, the disciples of a rabbi, you walked so closely behind your rabbi that where his feet kicked up dust, the dust came on you. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. It's not attend a service in a once in a while. It's walk so closely with him that you begin to sound and smell and act like him. And you know, sometimes, and I don't want to pick on the church, I love, I love the church. I love everybody in the church. But there's a danger in our modern culture that we can tend towards having a church where the focus is an appeal to the crowd. We look to mechanisms of communication where we can have mass evangelistic rallies. And I think that's a beautiful concept. But we, we're hoping, well, somebody's going to look after these people. If I get them saved, somebody's going to disciple them, right? Jesus said this was the mission. He modeled it, then he missioned it. Go and make disciples. And the first thing you do to a disciple is you take them and you submerge them publicly in water and then to say people go what is he doing I'm making a public demonstration that my old life is dead and I'm following him in the days today where we have the faculty for rapid proclamation of the gospel everywhere it seems like we seem to be losing ground three years ago four years ago we went to Thailand for the First World Without Orphans Global Forum. And I met one of Leif's guys, Benji, one of Leif's sons, Benji's there. And we, we'd, he would, we'd ask them, Leif said, oh, I've got some sons there. I said, wow, we'd love to help them come. And we were ministering. We were doing a date with God with 500 people. So we needed some ministers. And I, so we met Benji there. And, and I was just hanging out with him, really liked him. And uh, he said, you know, the Lord, uh, the Lord told me the other day that uh, he wanted me to get on with the job that he told me to do. And then he would fulfill the promise that he made. He said, I said, go and make disciples, and then he promised that he would build a church. Jesus said, you go and make disciples, I'll build my church. He said, you're trying to build the church, and you're leaving discipleship up to me. He said, no, no, let's turn this around. You go make the disciples, and I'll build my church. And that's what Benji told me in 2016. I, I, I had a, a call with him now in, in March of this year. Um, because we were working on this discipleship course, because it's something the Lord's been whispering to me. I said, how's it going, Benji? He said, we baptized, this was in December, we baptized 1,400 new converts in Thailand. Thailand's known as the place where missionaries go to die. I mean, nothing happens in Thailand. He said, they had 1,400 converts got baptized in December last year out of small groups, out of people that he's discipled, who've discipled, who've discipled, 1,400. They had a public mass baptism, local, national news was there to video this, something is going on in Thailand, and he said since that time, this was March, they're baptizing another 2,000 people in March. 
Because one guy started to disciple 12. And then said, well, they do a little evangelism course, and, they need to, and then now you go and disciple. And they discipled. Jesus lived with his disciples, so we're going to have to do life together a little bit more. I'm so glad my early experience in my walk with Jesus was that there were some people who came around me and took me under their wing and taught me how to love the word and taught me how to pray and, and, and encouraged me, sometimes prodded me, sometimes just plain out rebuked me. You know, My spiritual father would like... He'd go, what is the Lord saying to you? And woe betide you if you didn't, like, I, I don't know. He'd go, what? Have you been listening? Like, what's your, you know, like, he, it was astounding to him that you, like, you hadn't spent hours on the word. Most of us, if we're lucky, start out with somebody who gives up some of their time and begins to share some of their life, and they guide us through, and they show us what the word says, and they explain stuff to us. The first time I ever saw somebody healed was because he took me with me to pray. The first time I ever saw demons coming out of people was because he took me into a deliverance session. He said, no, no, wait, this is how. Praise God I was with him the first time. First time I ever saw a guy who was medically written off, he walked out of hospital. We prayed, the two of us went in the hospital room and prayed with him. God raised him up. So I'm so glad that I had somebody like that to walk with me. He walked me through Saved me about 15 years of struggle. Brought me on. Expected things of me. Required things of me. Called me to obedience. Called me to sacrifice. Expected more than attendance once on a Sunday. In fact, he'd wait for me at youth on Friday nights. And, and sometimes he'd come pick me up. If I said, well, I don't know how I can get there. I'll pick you up. And then Sunday morning first service. He was there, and Saturday night was a, was a prayer meeting. So we'd go to the prayer meeting. So Friday night was youth, Saturday night was prayer meeting, Sunday morning was a service, Sunday afternoon. He'd be waiting for me outside the church, and that's what we did. And then Thursdays, we'd go and hang out together, and he, we'd talk the word in Scripture and prayer. Five times a week in the first few years. Praise God for him. You know, that man didn't amount to much in the eyes of the world, but I know about six or seven people who are in ministry today because he taught them how to love God's word. See, when the books are open in heaven, there's a different value system there. This man is going to be up there. And my voice is going to be one of the greatest cheering because of what he did for me. You can be the same for others. You can make a difference. We talked at the beginning about investing for eternity. One of the best ways you can invest for eternity is give what you know to somebody else. Help them forward. It's our method. I'm, I'm running out of time. It's supposed to be the method we use. Jesus modeled it for us. He gave us this mission, and now it's supposed to be our method. See, we go, oh, no, no, thanks, Jesus. I, I see how you modeled it. I know you said go and make disciples, but, we, but you don't understand. We, we have the internet now. And so we're going to do it a different way. We're going to tweet our way into conversion. Second Timothy. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. This uh, I had it written out in a different version, but I can't find it now. Uh, 
But the, the, uh, I, go and read that in the Passion Translation. I think it'll bless your socks. The habit of taking what we know and entrusting it to reliable people, to hungry people, to people who are pressing forward, to people who are eager to learn, that is a massive and a significant investment in the kingdom. We're not talking about people who are looking for the stage or looking for, I'm talking about people who want to invest in other people. Because discipleship goes so far beyond just tickling people's ears and telling them what they want to hear. It's holding people to standards. It's changing the way they think. It's the entire value system that they have. The kingdom is, is invasive. It's, it's changing. Jesus took his disciples and he completely had to radically radically altered their thinking patterns. Sometimes he rebuked them. He said they had to choose between God and money. He made it digital. Choose, guys, I'm telling you now. You can't serve both to choose one. He said perfect love was now going to be the standard of our conduct. He said, he said, if you don't leave everything else that's valuable to you, if you don't leave father, mother, sisters, houses, and wealth, you can't be my disciple. He said, if you, if, if you come with me and then you turn back, he said, you can't be my disciple. See, it's, it sounds a little jarring. It's like, is, is he not loving? He goes, no, no, no. But I want you to understand, I can't put the kingdom on the crowd because crowds of converts are fickle. I can confer the kingdom on disciples. Go and make disciples. was the commission. Jesus told them that sacrifice was going to be their daily experience. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. If you don't, you can't be my disciple. He, do you understand? If you're talking to a convert in the crowd and you're talking to a disciple, those are two very different conversations. Because a disciple, you go, listen, you better change the way you're thinking, otherwise you're not going to even see the kingdom, which is what Jesus said. He said that serving others is gonna be your basic resting pulse. He said that obedience to the Father is absolutely mandatory. And the truth is that not many people could take his teachings. Many turned back. John 6, 66, many turned back from following him. Uh, he said, it's easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for, for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Peter said, Lord, that's, that's tough. That's a hard teaching. Who can bear that? It wasn't all, are you, are you, are you comfortable with this? Jesus said, no. I have to disciple 12 because I want to confer. See, friend, just, just get this. When Jesus died, all he left was a broken body and 11 disciples. That was, that was it. He, he, he bet the entire rest of the kingdom on the earth on those 12 that he had discipled. If you want to make a difference in the kingdom, then committing your life to be part of a group of people, imperfect as we all are, warts and all, and saying, I want to go somewhere in my spiritual life. I want to go deeper. I want to learn to love Jesus more ferociously. I want to be winsome. I want my love for Jesus to leak out of me. I want people to come to know him because I know him. I want to be more than a convert. I want to know how to be a disciple. And the process of discipleship 
although it has a tremendous cost to it, it has an unbelievable upside to it. Because it's our meal. This idea of discipleship and the offer that Jesus makes is not, oh, here's a long punch list of all the cost that it's going to be to you. And, but there is going to be a cost to you. The, 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 the greater by far is that this is our meal. Because in Revelation 3.20, Jesus talks about this idea that you're invited to a meal. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and, and opens the door, I will come into them and I will eat with that person. I will up with them. We will have rich fare. You can lie down, put your head on my chest and ask me questions. And Jesus said, I'm standing at the door. I'm making this offer. And if anybody opens, we're going to have this kind of relationship. You interested? Because the door to this offer only opens from the inside. I stand at your door and I knock. See, those weren't the only 12 that Jesus invited, but they were the only 12 that stuck. Jesus said to the rich young man, the rich young ruler, he said, listen, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you come follow me. And the rich young ruler said, yeah, I can't do that. And Jesus said, okay. I'm happy being a convert here, Jesus. What should I do to inherit eternal life? It's the question of converts. What is the minimum I need to do to be part of the crowd? Jesus said, well, you should obey the, the commandments. Go, ah, ever since I was a child, I have. Jesus said, okay. Testing to see if he, if he wants to move out of convert into disciple. He goes, well, sell everything you have, come follow me. Offer of discipleship. Yeah, I can't do that. Said, okay, now I see. You're a crowd member. That's fine. I'll teach you. I'll bless you. I'll heal you. I'll drive demons out of you. But you can't be one of my disciples. Am I being too harsh? I hope you're not catching the heart because I'm not trying to be harsh here. I'm just, I'm telling you because this is, this is the absolute passion of Jesus for you. I, I tell you a truth. He longs for you more than you long for him. He longs to talk with you. He longs to show you because Jesus was not stingy when he asked his disciples. He said, my peace I give to you, the peace that sustains you, my joy I give to you. Here are the keys of my kingdom. I give them to you. Jesus held nothing. He go, oh, what else you need? He, I, I, I'm my life, I'm going to give for you. There's nothing Jesus withholds from disciples. The crowds were going, what? I don't understand what he's saying. The disciples are going, explain that to me one more time. He's going, this is how this works. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven is given to you. But to them, I speak in riddles. Disciples have access. Disciples have intimacy. Disciples learn about Jesus. Disciples get the kingdom given to them. They function on earth to release the kingdom of God, but the crowd will never do that. There's an offer at the door of your heart. It only opens from the inside. It's your call to discipleship. And it's your call to remember your first love. 
you've been invited to the meal. All over the scriptures, this is real. 1 Peter 2 says, <laughs> Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. 2 Thessalonians 3. For you yourselves know how, how you ought to follow our example, Paul says. Philippians 3, he says, join with others in following my example, brothers and sisters. 1 Corinthians 11, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. There are some truths that you can only discover on the other side of your commitment to discipleship. Let me say that again. I listen, I tell you a truth. There are some truths, there are some aspects there are some intimacies in God that you will only discover after the commitment of discipleship. The crowd will never know them. John 7, my teaching is not on my own. It comes from the one who sent me. And if somebody chooses to do the will of God, they'll find out whether my teaching comes from God or not. If you choose to commit, that's when you'll discover. In just a few weeks, we're going to be launching community groups, end of August, as we usually do. It's been a, a, a year that I don't think, a year and a half that nobody will forget easily, I don't think. For most people, it's been a bruising year. It's been emotionally, physically, spiritually, financially, a tough, tough period of time. And it's time for us to come together and pull out of it. And we're going to. The thing that I feel like the Lord is whispering to us is that there needs to be a discipleship. We go a little deeper. We draw a little closer. We grow together as a family. Because I think the Lord wants to do something profound. He wants us to disciple. And I think he's going to turn around and we're going to disciple more. And this becomes exponential. Not because we focused on the exponential. but We focused on the few in front of us right now and we gave ourselves to them. If you would like to be part of that, and there are many here who should, if you know you've got something to give, and there were some people that could be really tremendously launched downfield by learning what you know, then why don't you text to this, there's a, there's a, there's a community group thing, if you text to 97,000, you, you just send the text community group, It'll get to our staff and we'll know you're, you're saying, hey, I, I'm interested in leading a community group and we'll get you in touch with one of the, the pastors and elders of, of each congregation and they'll be able to help you and I suspect that they'll give you some early information, they'll give you early access to the journey map so that you can start looking through the journey map and seeing how you can work with us on our journey map to help people understand. Next week, we're gonna unveil the journey map. It's a very exciting thing. I'm very jazzed about it. And it's going to be a platform for us for many, many years to come of how we help people grow up in their faith and how we call them to a deeper, intimate love with Jesus. And that's the goal. Don't miss next week. It's going to be a good one. And uh, we're trusting God. I want to pray with you that the Lord would just help us and move us closer to this goal. Jesus said, this is how you know people are my disciples. They love one another. 
And when, when people were loving one another deeply, people would go, they're Jesus people. That's what Jesus said. That's how you should know them. <laughs> Look how they love one another. They must be disciples of Jesus. Lord, make that more than words. Make that the beautiful reality of our church. I'm asking, Lord, that you would speak to people in this place, that out of this moment and out of this time, you'd launch, Lord, community and discipleship that significantly launches people forward in their walk with God. Not to us, Lord, not to us. To your name be the glory. For Jesus' sake, amen.